Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Normally, we're live right here on WNUR, FM Evanston, Chicago, but now that it's summer, our team is traveling all over the world, making it hard for us to get into the studio live. Not to worry, you're still going to get your OBS fix. This summer, our shows are pre-recorded, but still released at their usual time, That's Mondays at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR and re-released on Tuesdays as podcasts on iTunes. You'll get all your favorite segments, guest interviews, and of course, our team's hot takes on everything opera-related. And you can still have your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail on 224-2189-BOX. That's 224-218-9269. Tweet us at OperaBoxScore. Or write to us via Facebook or at OperaBoxScore at gmail.com. Leave a voicemail. We might even put you in on the show. All right. This week, I go inside the huddle with fight choreographer Nick Gizondi. We talk about the philosophy behind onstage fighting, and we'll teach you how to do a realistic hair pull. Plus, don't miss when Nick tells me what the nastiest combat move he's ever seen on stage is. Then, at 9.35 p.m., it's the return of our hometown team segment when we focus on opera stories right here in the Windy City. I take a closer look at the casts and artistic teams for the three shows at Chicago Opera Theater's upcoming season. You'll find out which one of those things is not like the other. And, but of course, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. What a great show for you tonight. If you've been hanging out with this summer, you'll realize that we've been doing some great shows this summer. Again, summer usually a slower time in opera land, but man, summer of 2017, a lot happening. Talk a little bit of sports first. Cubbies finally above 500, 521 to be exact. Half a game behind the NL Central leading Milwaukee Brewers, and yet, please... Can baseball season just end? Football season cannot come soon enough. And I'm not talking Bears. We all know the Bears season is going to be a disaster this year. Trubisky as quarterback is going to be a total mess. I'm talking college football. I just cannot wait, finally, for the Michigan Wolverines to get back onto the gridiron and start playing some games. You know, I grew up in Ann Arbor. And even the spring game at Michigan is a huge thing. 
This is what's funny, though, about the Cubs. Cubs, World Series champs, back again for another crack, added another bite at the apple, and, uh, you know, routinely selling out Wrigley Field, the sixth most attended club in baseball. That's average attendance. You know I'm a stats guy. Of course, Dodgers, Cards, Giants, Jays. Who would have thought the Toronto Blue Jays would be pulling in almost 40,000 fans a game at those Jays games? Uh, look, Canada, I got a message for you. Baseball is our sport. It's not your sport. Stick to hockey. Got a great good call, bad call for you as well, this show. You know I don't watch a lot of movies. When I do, I make them blockbusters. Stick around for the end of the show, good call, bad call. Got a great recommendation. Maybe some of you have seen this movie already. Just came out, but you're going to have to stick around. Till the end of the show for that one, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. All right, so yeah, we have a fantastic show for you tonight. Thanks for joining us, by the way. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Nick Jazandi is an actor, director, and fight choreographer based in New York City. He and I are working together on a production of Bizet's Carmen at the Bayview Music Festival this summer. It's probably the most violent production of Carmen you've ever seen. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me. Am I, am I right that the Carmen is, is the most violent thing you've ever done? Uh, in darn, opera? In opera. Pretty darn close. I mean, um, in... I don't think I've ever staged this much before for an opera, which is pretty amazing. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I think there's a, it's, it's definitely taking it to another level that most Carmens don't get done that way. Well, we'll link back to Carmen in a second. Let's go back to the very beginning for you. What, what's the stereotypical fight director like? Well, most guys in the business that I have trained with or know, um, it's a pretty extensive field now, so there's a lot of different type of personalities. But we're uh, students of martial arts primarily and theater, and it's, uh, and it's an art form that's been uh, developed probably over the last 40 years as, um, you know, as a safety training ground. Um, so a lot of the, the guys that I know are, are, are very, uh, very intelligent in the world of, of, of combat. They know their stuff. Um, what kind of martial arts did you do? Well, I trained originally at a very young age in karate, uh, and I did study judo. I've studied tai chi, but uh, mostly once I got into stage combat, um, it's Western martial arts is what we call it. Hmm. So it's medieval and Renaissance fighting with... Rapier and dagger, broadsword, quarterstaff, unarmed, um, various uh, battle axe and shield. You know, it gets it get it can it could be a broad uh, style of fighting. Um, are there? You said guys. Are there mm-hmm. female fight choreographers? Yes, there are. There are actually. I train with the Society of American Fight Directors, and um, there is one fight master in the Society of American Fight Directors. Um, as a female, and there are more certified teachers now. Um, I am coming across a lot more female choreographers as well. Um, it's, it should be a, a, um, 
something that encompasses uh, both genders. I, I really do feel that female fighters are excellent, trained fighters, and there's no reason why they shouldn't choreograph. So, yeah, it's becoming more predominant now than it's been in the past but yeah when you were getting into the performing arts was was fighting like the way in for you was that the first thing it became a niche for me actually um i trained as a classical actor i did a lot of shakespeare uh, early on and uh though my first uh stage fight was in a musical i did uh, cabaret i was uh one of the <laughs> i was waiting for what musical <laughs> you were gonna say i did one of the soldiers uh, the nazi soldiers and i had to uh, have a fight scene with cliff in that but then i trained classically for many years and i always used to seem to get cast in the fight role and um most production i was in, when i moved to new york city there wasn't a lot of fight coordinators in the productions i was involved with so um, I sort of took it upon myself to train and become a fight coordinator because of that, for safety reasons and also uh, good stage fights. Um, so, yeah, it was a niche, and I did it for, uh, for many years just as its own thing. When we talk about the terminology, mm -hmm. fight coordinator, fight director, fight choreographer, are these interchangeable, or do they actually mean different things? It depends on... Who, uh, who you're working with, number one. Sometimes you will work with a director that does not want to share the term director. So uh, I tended to use that term in the theater more than I use it on film. Film, you tend to use a uh, fight coordinator. Stunt coordinator are the terms that you tend to use. Fight director is more in the theater, but then, it, like I said, it depends on um, if the director is not wanting to share that, that title with you. Um, uh, I will then call myself a fight coordinator or a fight choreographer. And it sometimes will depend on the, on the type of work you're doing. If you uh, if you're, are coordinating a bunch of different sequences and, uh, and putting mass battles together, things like that, it's different from just doing one stage fight or a stab or something like that. So it, it varies. And then I started also incorporating the term violence coordinator, or choreographer, because you don't always do a fight, but you're teaching somebody how to stab somebody or a self-inflicted wound. So that's sort of in a different vein from a fight. So It's something you and I have come across in Carmen, right? Where mm -hmm. there's a lot of pushing and shoving. Mm -hmm. And it's this liminal space of like, is that a fight? Does that need to be choreographed? Do we just kind of let the actors kind of, quote, feel it? Mm -hmm. But we want everybody to be safe. So, you know, how do you, how do you tackle those moments that are kind of in that gray area? Mm -hmm. Well, I like, to, first of all, I want to give um, the actors that I'm working with, um, I, want, I want to see what they come up with first. And, and, and a lot of times I want to give them the benefit of knowing how to use their bodies. I don't feel like I have to come in and show everybody how to do every push and shove. Um, what I'm learning lately is that there are... Uh, Depending on where I'm working, there's a, a difference in the training. So some, you know, some productions I have to come in and train everybody from scratch. Some productions they've already had fights that they've done, stage fights of some sort. So I'm just choreographing them. But when you get into sort of the scuffle, the grappling moves, I like to call them, the chokes, the hair pulls, the thing, they're all tricks, though, on the stage to be safe. The one thing what we do is we try to, we're trying to make what we do 
effective, but also safe so the next day the actor can still work. In the stunt business, and I do some stunts, the, the only way you work is to be able to show up on set the next day. And the same thing in the theater. So I want to make everybody aware of what they're doing. Um, if it looks unnatural, I step in and just clean it up. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR, 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here talking with fight director Nick Gizondi. Nick, on your website, mm-hmm. nickgizondifights.com, <laughs> which I was like, is that fights as a verb or fights as a noun or both? You have a great page on your website. Link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. That's how you can get to Nick's page. You say staging violence is not only a convention used to invoke a reaction from the audience, but also show the dire circumstances that the characters face when choosing to use it as a means to solve a conflict. I read that, and that really struck me that although what you do is very physical, it Mm -hmm. actually comes from a place of acting and intention. Mm -hmm. How, How did you come up with this philosophy? The idea that I always believe is the only time even in in real life situations we only resort to violence is when words don't suffice. It's we are trying to avoid a fight. In in the stage we are doing the same thing where we have to prolong the tension in order in order to get to the fight. And for the audience they have to feel that underneath even in a non-combative scene. And my philosophy is to train everybody to believe that at any moment you will step over the line. So you have to be aware of that even in your verbal confrontations. Um, the, the philosophy behind it, it for me was always that I'm, be, I'm a very actual passive person. I don't get into fights. And I, but I'm a, I've trained and understood how to understand why violence happens and what, why people are provoked to, to do it. And when I chose NickJasandiFights.com, just to, to pull back that to a little, uh, back to that, is that um, it became originally a domain name just to separate me, you know, into what I did. But then it also became a mantra for me as a as a person fighting for other things. Um, the rights of people as well. So it's uh, I consider myself a fighter for on the stage, but also as a humanitarian as well. I love that, and I think that in our collaboration on Carmen, mm-hmm. the first thing you and I have always talked about every single time has been story mm-hmm. and intention. Right, and then we've gone from there. And I'm going to call it your bag of tricks. It's not just that. It's uh-huh. more than that. But then we kind of have gone to the bag of tricks. And then, like, how are we going to apply the technical side of it mm-hmm. to what we need in terms of the story and the emotion right. of the moment? Right. Well, it, you try to, I think, when you're, especially in this production, um, there's so many uh, sequences and so many moves. I tallied up our... our uh, just our fight call uh, sheet. There's 21 sequences that in our show, um, and that's uh, so. In doing that, when having that much vi- uh, stage violence, right. you, and the opera is 100 minutes in our cut, so it's like a, a fight every five minutes. Pretty much, yeah. And um, but in terms of it, trying to uh, but piecing them all together because they become different riot sequences, not just a punch or a slap of a 
uh, two characters. Um, when you're putting it all together and you're trying to tell a picture, a story in pictures, I should say, um, you want to, to vary the action. Just like in blocking, you don't want to cross to the same place more than a couple times or do a certain amount of gestures. So I tried to pick as many tricks, as we called them, uh, as I could to vary for the visual for the audience. But I always believe in a philosophy that an actor doesn't fight the same, you know, because they don't talk the same, they don't walk the same, they don't do a lot of things the same. So in our production of Carmen, uh, Carmen will fight different from Mercedes. Don Jose fights different from Escamillo. And that's about style and choices of moves. So that's where the variation comes in. You have done theater, you've done opera, you've done film. Are there really any differences between doing fights for a play and doing fights for an opera? Or are they essentially the same approach for you? The only difference for me is the music dictates in the opera how much time you have to achieve what you the fight sequence. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Sometimes the restraint is tricky. Obviously, in our knife fight, Escamillo and Don Jose, we have so many measures that we have to make sure that the fight falls in. In a straight play, you don't have that issue. Hamlet and Laertes can take all the time and they want to fight. Um, you know, But it's confined to music. And that, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it, it's challenging. The other thing is the music does dictate the emotion for the fight fighters involved so that's kind of an, a fun bit so they're they're driven by that you don't have to worry about a composer creating incidental music in a play for you you already have it built in already so there is a, a fundamental difference difference just in the time restraint i think hmm. between the two how about differences between working on stage and working in film and i know mm-hmm. literally nothing about mm-hmm. making movies at all mm-hmm. i think i've been on a movie set once in my life uh-huh. it feels like there will be dramatic differences mm-hmm. between stage and film well the one thing about the big fundamental difference between stage and film is the amount that you have to see the master shot on stage you see the whole fight you see all the the angles have to be a certain way so you can you can sell the punch or the kick or the you know uh, or the the blade attack or whatever um, the audience can see everything in film you cut you can go to close-ups to specials you can do master wide shots and then bring them in and you can do you can actually virtually film from any angle um, you also don't have to deal with sound effects in uh, film from the performance side. That gets added in post-production. On the stage, you have to create the nap, which is the sound effect. So if you're throwing a punch, you have to make the sound of what that sounds like, the slap. And so that adds an extra layer for the, the stage performer that the film performer doesn't have to worry about. Um, you can just do the action of throwing a punch. You don't have to worry about making the sound as well. Um, and then you can work in short bursts, spurts, excuse me, um, little uh, slices on film to get a shot down exactly a move the way you want it. Whereas in film, from the beginning to the end, you have to try to keep it as consistent as you can hmm. and, um, and recover if there is mistakes made. So the rules that you know theater is this living thing mm-hmm. still apply to everything that happens on that stage, mm-hmm. just in the way that 
for a film, all you need is just the one single moment and as many times as it takes to get that and to enhance it in post-production, those rules also apply. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's, it's, there's, you know, once in, in, in theater, there's no turning back. You have to, and I've been in productions where the, the blade is broken or the blade is flown out of somebody's hand, you know, a knife or something, and you have to figure out what do you do to get the same, the end result has to happen. Someone has to die at the end of that fight, and now you don't have a blade in your hand, so you have to improvise. <laughs> so how do you solve that, or how did you solve that? Uh, well, sometimes it, it can be as basic as a choke, you know, really just going to the primal, gripping somebody's throat and, and doing it that way. Um, we, uh, I was in a production one time where we decided that we needed to have a, a second knife, placed on stage just for that purpose if there was a mistake and so we and it did happen again and then the knife was there to and then handed by another character it was a it was a, a knife fight with a lot of people around so it, it, it looked natural but uh it, it has happened you know in productions at the at the med even where blades have broke that are supposed to break break too early things like that and you just have to you have to improvise just like you would dialogue or singing, you know? You have to find a way. <laughs> How about on the film set? What sort of stunts have been some of your favorites on a film set? Well, I'm, I have to say, I mean, mostly... Um, I mean, I'm still... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy that really likes uh, fighting and, and horse riding and, and, and things like that. I, I'm, that's pretty much what excites me. I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. I'm a big... Vikings fan, uh, The Last Kingdom shows like that. Those are the the, the, the stunts I really enjoy because the stunt fighting is really uh, there's a lot that goes into it. I have such respect for guys that do high falls and burn work, and I've trained with some guys in this way. I've done uh, three story high falls, and I've done um, jousting, and I've done things like that. Um, but I haven't done the, the major utility stunts. But I do know guys that do that. I'm friends with those guys. And it's very, I'm respectful of their work. Um, it's always impressive. All of it's impressive. The fact that guys do what they do, put their bodies on the line, and then walk away the next, from it, and the next day they're back on set. And so uh, there's very little that does not impress me. It, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Hey, after the break, Nick tells me what the nastiest combat he's ever seen or done on stage is you don't want to miss that opera box score wnur 89.3 fm live from chicago you're listening to opera box score more right after this wake up at five to give dad his medicine Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up for at For those five caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Hey, welcome back to the show. George Cedarquist here on Opera Box Score. It's WNUR 89.3 FM. My guest tonight, fight choreographer Nick Jazandi. He and I are working on this production of Carmen right now at the Bayview Music Festival in Michigan. Nick, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, George. Great to be here. Um, we've talked about fights in theater, in opera, on film. You've got to give us something that we can do at home. What is a, what is a try this at home move? And obviously it's radio, so you're going to be just using your words. But what's something that, that our listeners can practice on their... Wow. Loved ones or mortal enemies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think one of the things that's uh, just because of the the non danger factor of it, and people, I think a hair pull is kind of an easy one to sort of describe. And uh, a hair pull, usually, um, what I do is, inst- you, a lot of times you'll put your hand on on. you'll see a hair pull with somebody putting their hand on top of somebody's head and it just looks like a hand on the top of somebody's head. But if you take your fingers and you kind of put a little bit through the tuft of the hair, sort of a claw on the top of the head, and then your victim grabs the wrist, your wrist, usually with the same, um, so you would be behind them, so it would be the uh, right hand grabbing the right wrist. And pretty much the person getting the hair pull does all the work. They're pulling their neck up and then moving around the stage. So they mimic all the action is controlled by them and the person who's grabbing them by the hair is pretty much following them. It's sort of a traditional way of doing a a hair pull that's safe and effective. Um, it's really hard to describe anything else. I know, man. You're like using your hands and nobody can see it. It's fantastic, though. Um, and what I, one of the few moves that I actually learned to do from uh-huh. another fight choreographer was to do a choke. And, uh-huh. and it was a guy from the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh-huh. And he talked about this idea of, like, reverse tension. Yes. Essentially that when you're doing a choke... The person who's getting choked, we'll call them person A, has their hands on their throat. Now, I'm illustrating it on myself. Uh Uh And person B, who's doing the choking, has their hands on that person's hands. B is trying to pull A's hands away from themselves, and A is trying to choke themselves. Yes. A lot of it's in reverse. In reverse. We have to think about it in reverse. So... My the the tension only only tension you want in your body from the person who's choking the other person is to put it just in the shoulders, which means the forearms, the biceps, the hands have to be loose, which is really tricky to do. It's isolating, so you're not really putting the aggression into the person's throat. Um, the other person is holding on and then when they they're tucking their chin down to the hands to make it look like they're being totally uh their neck is being pressed into and then the control is from the person being choked they have to control where they how they get from the standing position to the floor or to their back so it's the reverse idea it's it's somebody it's like dancing you taking somebody else's lead 
So the attacker has to take the lead of the victim. So folks, you can try that hair pull and that <laughs> choke at home. There are a ton of moves that we see in the movies that we see on stage, which are obviously, mm-hmm. don't try this at home. Right. What are some of those things that that are in your arsenal, which right. I think is a good word, when you're like, this is super complicated and the great fight directors and choreographers make it look easy. Right. I think on the unarmed standpoint, I mean, um, kicks are extremely difficult to do, um, to do effectively, because um, you can pad up certain parts of the body, and I do recommend that, um, padding the ribs, padding the groin areas, things like that. Um, I think that the most difficult of the, all the kicks is the groin kick. And there is, and it's, it's used a lot, and um, there's two styles of doing it. There's a style that you kind of kick to the inner thigh, and then there's a style where you kick through uh, to the back mm-hmm. of, the, of the butt. Um, but you have to be able to have control of the leg. It's almost like uh, in, in, in ballet to be able to shoot the, the leg out but pull it back. And you work in opposition there, too. You have to go slow and then fast slow in and fast back so you don't really make an impact um i've had some trouble with that one before myself it it was a bad thing on the set that went wrong oh and uh yeah and the actor went down for a good 10 minutes that is yeah being kicked in the nuts definitely don't want to yeah and it it really there's there's no way around i mean it's 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 one of those things where you either um, when it goes bad, it goes bad. And so I try to avoid doing that type of kick. Uh, I'll try to come up with another method uh, or another move or something that will, um, you know, and if the directors are cool with that, then we just go with that. But uh, it's, it's really a very <laughs> sensitive place. So, you know, when, it, when you, it goes wrong, it goes wrong. What about stuff with, with weapons? Well, anytime, I mean, I've been a trained fighter um, with rapier and broadsword and, um, you know, for probably about 25 years now. Um, and uh, I think any, even though all the, the weapons are blunt and they're unsharpened, uh, they still are a threat. Uh, you still can put a blade into somebody's body with a that's dull. And I've seen it... Uh, happen on stage in a, in, a, in a very bad way, not productions I've been involved with, but uh, but gone to see things and know that something's gone wrong and found out later on uh, somebody was impaled with a, a broadsword. Um, I've actually had a knife, uh, a, a dagger go into my thigh three inches um, in a fight that was rehearsed um, w- and performed many times. It, it just, it, the target went off and, you know... Um, my uh, opponent put that in my thigh. Um, so, I mean, weapons are seriously, can be really dangerous, even though they're blunt. Um, and so I just recommend, and anyone who wants to do this, train with somebody. Don't take it upon yourself to, you know, just go buy some, you know, stage combat weapons. I mean, and there's different ones out there. There's guys that make them strictly for the stage, and other guys I call, they're wall hangers, they're decorative swords that are sharp, so you, uh, if you're going to do stage combat, you make sure they're stage combat ready because they will snap at the tangs and they will come sharp. So if it, you don't get them from the right guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a guy named uh, Neil Massey out of 
Chicago uh, has a company called Rogue Steel, which is a great company to buy stage combat weapons from. Thanks for the shout-out to Chicago, by the way. Our, mm-hmm. our listeners here will, will love that. What are some of the less traditional objects that you've used in your fights? Uh, I've, I've done about almost everything. Uh, it's How about really, a rubber chicken? Uh, rubber chicken, not yet. Okay. But there's still some more time to work with you <laughs> on something, George, on that one. Um, but I, I have done... Um, uh, Things that are like uh, a lamp I've used. Uh, one of the things that I would like to do is use props that are in the space if it's not, if it's a non traditional weapon. If you are, I did private lives years ago and we had to incorporate some of the, the implements around the, the living room. That's a Noel Coward drawing room comedy. Yep. And there was a big fight between the husband and wife. There's actually two fights that, and, and they're kind of almost mimicked, they're mirrored uh, between the two couples. And we had to use non-conventional weapons. I used a record that comes off the record player, broken over his head. Um, uh, I've done some things that have been, you know, uh, also um, used hammers, things like that, which were, um, I did a scene one time where a woman had to uh, bludgeon her husband with a hammer in the back of the head. So you don't really get trained in how to use a hammer. You, you know, use variations on that with... Uh, you know, when you're learning traditional weapons, but then you have to modify it, and then you kind of you look at a weapon, and you say, "Oh, this is close to what a club would be. This is close to what a a, a knife would be, or a, a sword, or a, a spear," and then you modify it, and and on that side. Mm-hmm. What are some of the nastiest moves that you've either seen? Mm-hmm. on stage, and I mean nasty in terms of that's the way they were supposed to be staged, not when things went horribly uh-huh. wrong, that you've either seen on stage or that you yourself have staged? Well, I have to say that um, probably going from what I've staged first, I mean, the some of the, the the work in Carmen right now, and I have to say, because it's a lot of you know, head slams into shopping carts and, and it's flips, it's throws to the floor and it's people getting cracked in the head with bottles and things like that. Um, that's probably some of the most uh, nasty, visceral stuff. I did uh, Henry IV once with breakaway shields uh, with maces and, and things like that where when you, when you can splinter a shield on stage with a, with a weapon, you know, and um, um, that is probably some of the most effective stuff I've seen, uh, that I've worked on. Um, stuff that I've seen, um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I don't, I don't see, a, I see more in film lately than, um, that way than I do on the stage. I, I'm, I'm still waiting in some ways to see some, some, uh, I mean, I've seen some really, I know there's some of the choreographers that I, I like and I've seen some of their work and I really am impressed by it. Um, but I'm still, uh, everything, a lot of what I see from, from a stage standpoint seems to be uh, controlled in a controlled uh, way. So I, I don't, it's hard to say it's, that's really nasty. Um, I, did, I have to say, though, I did see a, a production years ago um, of a Richard III where a lot of spears went into him, multiple spears. And it's still impressive because I don't know how they got it. You know, he, he, they all plunged him in to his body and then stepped away and the spears were still left in him. And I could not figure out how that, that had 
been done. Yeah. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR. Talking with fight director Nick Tazandi. So when you do go see a show, when you go see a movie, mm-hmm. is it like um, one magician watching another magician and you're kind of looking for not the final effect, mm-hmm. but how they get there? And, and how easy is it for you to tell the way that the fights in film or on stage are created? Mm-hmm. That's the trickiest part is to try to be a kid still knowing what you know. And I'm sure with being a director, or I should ask you sometime about this, um, as a director, is it hard to see a film the same way when you're going into, you know, what, are the, what is that director doing versus what you do? Um, and I kind of feel the same way. It's like you, 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 the illusion sometimes is broken. You, there has to be something sensational to make me go, wow, that's really cool. And... Um, I'm still amazed by certain things. I, I will quote the uh, things from the Game of Thrones a lot. They're still impressing me. Um, they did a, an episode last year, The Battle of the Bastards, and I was like a five-year-old kid, and I was cheering. And um, they had a great fight um, with uh, the Mountain versus the Viper. It was a, a spear fight against a uh, two-handed broadsword, and it was very cool. Might against speed and um i was very impressed so i really do kind of still get in all of it i i I can see the tricks sometimes i know kind of when it's coming um i try to hope that they don't go to the place i think they're going to go and they and they go another direction but in fighting there's only so many things you can do there's only so many variations on the theme and then you know exactly what the outcome is going to be or the you know the trick that you say, you 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 know how it's achieved because there's only so many ways to do that particular thing. Hmm. So, but there is still magic. That, I'm glad to hear that yeah. because I think as a director sometimes I go see shows mm-hmm. and what I'm watching is the form and not the content. I want to go for the content and be moved by the story, but all I end up seeing is the form of how the direction, Mm -hmm. the staging, the conceptualization has taken place. Right. I think one of the things I saw recently is the Wonder Woman film. I thought it was quite impressive with the fights and the aerial work with the lasso and all that, and that was something I could not... It was seamless. I could not see where the you know, where the stunt performer is coming in and where the actors is going, you know, uh, where the cuts were. I couldn't, you know, it was hard to follow it. It was very, very impressive um, as a as a, a bit of, of film magic. And in film, again, because I know nothing about it, we often say, wow, he does his own stunts. She does her own mm-hmm. stunts. And that's kind of, I think, in the business, that's a very impressive feather in your cap. Why Why is that impressive? Or maybe it's not. Well, I think one of the things that we're starting to understand, I worked on a movie last year, and we had to um, use doubles a lot. And it takes up time to use a double because um, you have to set up multiple shots a certain way, whereas if the lead performer is doing their own stunt work or their own fights... Um, you can just continue through the action um, without having to do cutaways. You don't have to do master shots with the stunt performer and you know mid shots, and then go to close ups on the on the performer. The you know uh, that that helps in, in in time, and it also 
shows a bit too in the physicalities. I mean, they they do a pretty nice job matching it. But what I'm finding more and more now is actors want to be, um, uh, they want to be more involved. Both actors, uh, and I, when I say actors, I mean male and female. Um, they want to be more uh, part of the fight. They don't. They don't want somebody standing in for them. And so, stunt players will do much more of the dangerous work of it. Um, but I'm finding I'm finding it. Uh, you know, I think I think Gal Gadot did a fair amount of her own fight uh, fight sequences mm-hmm. on Wonder Woman. So, and you could probably research it, and then you're going to find more more and more that's becoming mm-hmm. the thing. You're a director as well, of course. Mm-hmm. What's next for you? Well, I'm working on Macbeth in New York right now. We're taking a hiatus um, until the fall, and we're doing a fundraiser to get a production up in the spring of New York. It's a, on my own company that I'm forming called Endless River, and uh, it's starting with a Shakespeare ensemble. Um, Shakespeare. How, many, how many fights are there going to be? Uh, well, it's because it's Macbeth, and now you've inspired me. It's <laughs> got to be at least somewhere matching the, the same amount, maybe a few less. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting, I'm thinking about actually hiring a, a choreographer and for this one. Let me just direct it and work with a fight chore- coordinator, which I don't normally do, and working with somebody else. Um, but we'll see. I still want to... I'm actually staging the, the battle scene that you do not see in the play, the one that they talk about, the bloody captain talks about. So that'll be staged. That's at the very beginning, beginning of the play, play, right? Yeah. yeah, okay. So the witches are in, in part of it, and... Uh, you'll see Macduff early in the play. Um, so I've sort of changed up a little bit of the idea of it just because I, I want to see that, that, that battle, which uh, we, uh, there was a um, Michael Fassbender's version of it recently. They showed, they call it the Battle of Elon, which is what we're sort of calling it as well. So we're incorporating that. Um, but yeah, we're, we're moving towards trying to create this Shakespeare Ensemble in New York, and with the hopes that it will carry into an opera ensemble next. That's the that's my next incarnation after the Shakespeare portion takes off. Very, very cool. Please make sure you put some of that footage on your website. Nick com is the website. Hey, Nick, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Thanks so much, George, for having me. It's been great. Looking forward to working with you in the rehearsal room. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up For those caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. How about we root for the home team? Hey, thanks for joining us for Opera Box Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist doing the solo show tonight. Wanted to bring back the hometown team segment and take a closer look at some local opera news and examine the 
artist rosters for the 2017-2018 season at Chicago Opera Theater. The first production of the season is The Console by Giancarlo Menotti, and definitely the big name here is Patricia Rossette is singing the role of Magda. If you've seen this show before, I've directed the show, seen the show before, this role is an absolute bear. She's on stage for virtually the entire time. Yes, she has the famous aria, Papers, Papers, but this whole show, emotionally, physically, musically, is very, very tough. And I don't think there's any question that she's up for, for tackling this part. Andreas Medesek, who is no longer the general director of Chicago Opera Theater, however, is returning to direct this production. And he's joined by Christoph Van Grisper, who is one of Medesek's collaborators, I believe, at Long Beach Opera. He's done a number of shows at Long Beach, most recently the world premiere of Fallujah. And he has experience in contemporary music, modern music, seems like a good choice for the console. Looking down the roster, what you see is a number of names that have already worked at Chicago Opera Theater. When you look at singers like Justin Ryan singing the part of John Sorrell, who was recently in The Perfect American, the Philip Glass Opera, which was last season at COT. Cedric Berry is returning. He was also in The Fairy Queen last season. Kyle Knapp as Nika Magaroff, the magician, also in Perfect American. Who else here? Kimberly Jones, singing The Foreign Woman, was in Fairy Queen at COT as well. This is a good thing. This is what you want. If you're a company like COT, in my opinion, audiences and the company themselves, they want to see the same artists coming back. Why? Because those artists are comfortable working at a company that they've already been at. They know the drill. They know the routines. They know the city. They know the rehearsal room. They know the process. It puts everybody at ease. And I think that's a very smart move on COT's part. The other thing that you're seeing in this cast for the console at COT is a number of students that are at the Chicago College for the Performing Arts at Roosevelt University that has a relationship through a young artist program with Chicago Opera Theater. We've talked about it a little bit on this show before. Sometimes we've been critical about it or we've asked questions about it. And it feels like this partnership at least looking at the season coming up, is working out quite well. Looking at singers like Kira Dills de Sura, Zacharias Nidzvicki, Lonnie State, Samuel J. Weiser. These are all singers that have gone through the program or currently in the program at CCPA connected with COT. So it makes sense. And COT is going to put them in roles in their productions and a show like Console has, it's not an ensemble, it's not a chorus, it's named parts, probably half a dozen named parts, I think, that you want singers of a certain quality to be able to pull off. Next show of the season is a new opera by composer Kevin Putz and librettist Mark Campbell called Elizabeth Cree. 
Now this is a new work, first done at Philadelphia Opera, and I'm, I'll be honest, I don't know the piece that well. When you look at the artist roster for a piece of contemporary music, the first question I would ask myself is, have these singers done other contemporary opera works, or is this going to be a real stretch? And when you look at mezzo-soprano Catherine Pracht, who is singing the title role in Elizabeth Creed, you look at her resume, a lot of her work has been creating roles in workshops of new operas. Just going off the bio here, Florence Williams by Susan Kander, Hester Prynne by Eric Sawyer, roles such as, and these are concerts now, um, the Ruder songs, John Coriolano's Fern Hill. So she's got a lot of credits in contemporary music, and that's exactly what you want to see when casting a piece that is also contemporary music. Conductor's Jeffrey McDonald. He is the music director of New York City's on-site opera. And again, seems like a smart choice here. The bio for him via the Chicago Opera Theater website doesn't specify any specific contemporary music. And I know I just said contemporary music connections are important. And that said, on-site opera is a company that takes standard repertoire and does them in immersive productions, site-specific productions, and that always asks a lot of a conductor. I think that we don't realize just how hard it is to be a conductor and how hard it is to try and marshal all those forces together, let alone do it outside of the opera house. And it seems like that's a smart choice as well for this production. Again, like the console, you have a number of Chicago-based singers that are doing roles in Elizabeth Cree. Quinn Middleman, Jonathan Wayan. These are singers that are partnered with, through the CCPA. Vince Wallace. It seems uh, Dave Govertson as well. Again, Chicago-based singers, yes, they should be singing in productions at Chicago Opera Theater. And then finally, on to the last piece of COTCs, and I should say pieces, really. It's a double bill by Donizetti, Il Pilmiglione, and Rita. Rita, that's a funny little show. I've directed it. It's a, it's a wacky little three-hander. Now, in my opinion, just like when you're doing contemporary music, you look at people's resumes, you want to see if they've done contemporary music. If you look at a standard rep composer like Donizetti, the question is, have they done Donizetti elsewhere? The answer in this case is yes. Angela Mortellaro is singing the two female leads in both of these Donizetti operas, and she's done Elixir of Love before. Always a good sign. I can say the same thing about Javier Abro, who's singing two of the male parts, and again, he has also done Donizetti in the past. Again, it's a great sign. Here's what's interesting to me overall, I would say, about Chicago Opera Theater. You know, when you look at a website, when you look at marketing, the order in which people are listed tells you a lot about the priorities of the production. And by and large, the singers are listed on the 
website pages for the shows first, right? So Patricia Reset, she's at the top of the bill. Angela Mortolaro at the top of the bill. As a director, of course, I think the director is the most important person. And I think because the director is conceptualizing the piece and the director is our way into the piece, I want that person to be at the top of the bill. It's not sexy necessarily. You know, you're Patricia Reset, you have Patricia Reset in your show. Yeah, of course, you're going to want to put her at the top of the bill. Amy Hutchison directing Rita, by the way, I would argue that she is probably the biggest director in Chicago right now for opera. She served on the directing staffs at Lyric Opera of Chicago and Houston Grand Opera for a number of years. She's directed around the world. She's done small stuff in Chicago. She's done big stuff in Chicago. This is a great hire, in my opinion. And the way that she works with singers, the way she works with multimedia, I think is going to turn this production into something really special. So uh, there's our hot takes on the three shows at COT and in our hometown team segment. Coming up next, it's the two-minute drill, everything you need to know about headlines in opera land from the past week. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week, delivered in two minutes tops. Opera Theater Pittsburgh Summerfest is rebranded as Pittsburgh Festival Opera. For Pittsburgh Opera, the new name of its operatic neighbor sounds a bit too familiar. Quote, our anxiety really stems primarily about the possibility of audience confusion. Pittsburgh Opera General Director Christopher Hahn said, Pittsburgh Opera hopes Pittsburgh Festival Opera will reconsider the name change after the summertime company's season wraps up this weekend. Pittsburgh Festival Opera has no plans to do so. Quote, our board thinks the name is perfectly lovely and we plan to stick with it, Pittsburgh Festival Opera General and Artistic Director Jonathan Eaton said. Mixed reviews are in for the opera The Revolution of Steve Jobs by composer Mason Bates and librettist Mark Campbell, which just opened at the Santa Fe Opera. In an interview in Austria, composer Philip Glass expresses appreciation for the Trump presidency. Quote, it is wonderful. For the first time, even children are getting politicized. Even my children, who used to be sunk in video games, now go to demonstrations and get involved politically. We should be grateful to Trump for having shaken this up. Composer John Adams has tweeted, Voila, completed manuscript of new opera Girls of the Golden West. Two years of panning for nuggets. Time for a break. Summer visitors turning up at La Scala are being asked politely to respect the dress code. If they show up in shorts and flip-flops, ushers direct them to a nearby H&M to buy shoes and pants before they're allowed to enter the auditorium. Over to the disabled list, Alexandra Kozak has canceled her participation at the Bayerische Staatsoper, the Bavarian State Opera, in the performances of Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman. The soprano will be replaced by Diana Damrau and Olga Pudova. Damro will sing the roles of Stella, Giulietta, and Antonia. Opadova will be performing Olympia. And on this day, Ernst Bloch was born in 1880, the composer of the opera Macbeth. And also Frank Wiedekind, the German poet and dramatist born in 1864. That's your two-minute drill. Live from Chicago... You're listening to Opera Box Score 
with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. All right, that's your two-minute drill for this week. Not a ton of time left in our show, unfortunately, but I'll comment on a couple of these stories. Oh, I just love it when yinzers fight. You know what yinzers are, right? Yinzers is a slang term from Sony from Pittsburgh. This is confusing to me. So there's Pittsburgh Opera. Full disclosure, I was part of the resident artist program there a couple years ago. And then there's Pittsburgh Festival Opera, formerly known as Opera Theater of Pittsburgh Summerfest, formerly known as Opera Theater of Pittsburgh, formerly known as something else. It's going to come to blows. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know why Opera Theater of Pittsburgh Summerfest changed its name to something so close to Pittsburgh Opera. Look, Christopher Hahn, General Director of Pittsburgh Opera, he's got a point. He says, our anxiety really stems primarily about the possibility of audience confusion. I think that's likely. I mean, if you're the smaller of the two companies, which is what Pittsburgh Festival Opera is, of course you want that confusion. You want people to show up at your shows. Now, the seasons are not concurrent. Pittsburgh Opera is during the academic year. Pittsburgh Festival Opera is during the summer months. But this is strange, definitely strange. You go to our website, operaboxscore.com, you can take a look at the logos of the two companies. You tell me which logo came first. Reviews are in for Revolution of Steve Jobs. They've been mixed. Wall Street, uh, excuse me, not Wall Street, Washington Post, New York Times, both very mixed reviews. I'm not going to do a full analysis on the show because I haven't seen the show. I will say, however... There's also a review in Fortune magazine, and I bet you're going to see other unusual media outlets. I bet you Wired magazine sends a critic to go see Revolution of Steve Jobs. Is this a bad thing, honestly? Someone, uh, two people have written an opera about an interesting individual. Have they meddled with history? Absolutely. It's not just a biopic. This happens all the time when you're doing work about real people. And they've changed the arc of Steve Jobs' story. You can read about it in those reviews. But if more people are going to opera and more media outlets, untraditional media outlets are reviewing it, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Philip Glass, I love that quote by Philip Glass. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that on a Facebook post or something. Good for him to attack the Trump presidency. Like that. It's wonderful, Philip Glass writes. For the first time, even my children are getting politicized. That's true. It's absolutely true. My kids have also gotten politicized in the last six to eight months purely because of Donald Trump. Hey, Donald Trump, you did something nice for a change. I love this La Scala dress code thing. If you show up in shorts and flip-flops, you need to go buy some pants and some shoes instead. I totally agree with that. Then about... The usher is sending them to H&M. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if there's a little deal with, with H&M. But it's, it, it's like anything in Italy. You know that summer when you went to Italy and you were wearing that tank top and you tried to go into that cathedral and they didn't let you? Yeah, you shouldn't wear a tank top in the cathedral. And no, you shouldn't wear flip-flops. Not just to the opera, but to, to any... Um, a suitably classy performance venue. Yes, there are dress codes for a reason. And I think it's kind of rude 
to show up in flip-flop shorts. Eh, I don't know. Could you go to Santa Fe in shorts? You could probably go to Santa Fe in shorts. Flip-flops, I draw the line at flip-flops. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right, time to wrap this show up super quick. Good call, bad call. Oliver Camacho's got one. He says that he's starring in a new primetime neo-futurists play called The Food Show, running July 27 through September 2nd. You can watch Oliver cook one of the five mother sauces and sing an ode to the self-wounding pelican. I don't get that joke. For more information, visit neofuturists.org here in Chicago. My good call is the movie Dunkirk. I talked about it at the beginning of the show. You know I don't see a lot of movies. Go see this film. It is not your typical war film. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to spoil it for you. Go see that movie. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. And the general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Hey there, can you do me a big favor and like our Facebook page? Then, I want you to go big or go home, comment on one of our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and be sure to leave a review as well. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you're on vacation or staycation this month. The OBS is back on Monday, July 31st. For more opera headlines, interviews, and insider opinions, Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment. Words so t-